Uh, I'd like to introduce our first speaker from Cincinnati, Noni. Grateful Recovering Co-Alcoholic. I like that term rather than saying I'm a ghost. I suffer from the disease of alcoholism as much. It took me a long time to, to realize that, but and realized that it was the beginning of a whole new way of life for me. How it was, was, as far as I know, nobody in my family would admit that there's any alcoholics in my family. Um, I don't know for certain that there is, but I think my one grandfather was He, I'm not sure, this is how much they don't talk about it. I'm not sure whether he was from Indianapolis and moved to Cincinnati, or whether his family was ready, and two of them moved up here, because I have scads of relatives up there, but I never see them except for one who does make the trip every so often. Um, and that's kind of the way things were in my family. Um, you didn't talk about things. Um, I had two two sisters and a younger brother. I was the oldest of all of these. As I said, the only alcoholic that I knew about was a friend of my family who was an insurance salesman and had done the whole nine yards of, you know, left the family penniless and disgraced himself and his family and his friends and nobody talked to him anymore. He was as close to the drunk under the bridge as you. And that was, they never mentioned the word alcoholic, but it was obvious from what they said that, you know, he got that way because he drank too much. And that was really the only alcoholic that I ever had any great contact with. Although I never really saw him. I saw him when I was real little, but after that, growing up, I never saw him, but I heard a lot about him because I went to school with his children. And so my idea of an alcoholic was that, of kind of a bad person. Um, I would never want to marry one. And people drank in my family. It was no big thing. It was uh, They were all social drinkers. Lots of my parents, who are alcoholics, but they aren't recovering yet. Um, liquor was a part of our way of life. We were allowed to have a sip of wine or champagne at Christmas and Thanksgiving or any big to-do, like a you know birthday party or uh, some kind of a christening, big family event. Um, not much, but we were allowed to taste it. Of course, I grew up in the era where, you know, you went out to dinner with your parents and you got a Shirley Temple. So drinking was part of my way of life, and I figured that's what I could do. I wasn't allowed to drink outside the home. And um, living in Ohio, of course, drinking, you had to be 21. So it wasn't until I finally decided to go away to college in New York that I ever got to drink on my own outside the house, because in New York you only had to be 18. I never was that enthralled with drinking. Um, I didn't think it was a great waste. I thought it was a waste of time. I tend to be a tightwad when it comes to that. And I would had I only had so much, and I wasn't about to spend it on it. When I went away to college, I... Um, it was the first time I was ever on my own. I was kind of a loner at school. I really didn't get along with, it wasn't that I didn't get along with anybody, I just didn't have a lot of close friends growing up in school. I had some close friends in my neighborhood, but they weren't, they didn't go to the same school I did. And so I kind of was leading a dual life. My real name is Lane. And I, finally when I got to college, I decided I would start going by Noni because that was the real me. Um, I was much more relaxed. Uh, than Lane was. Lane was a goody-goody at school. But the nuns loved her. She never did anything wrong. I had a sister that was two years behind me that was discouraged at the school. They were always, she was always in trouble. She was always in trouble at home. I never did anything wrong. 
A lot of that was just plain laziness. I just didn't want to get into trouble. It was just as easy to do what they wanted you to do. So I did what they all expected me to do, and they all thought I was wonderful. And a lot of it, too, was just fear. I just didn't want to, you know, I was a people pleaser. I didn't want to shake the boat and cause a lot of trouble. So I just went ahead, and I wanted to be able to do what I wanted to do, which at that time was mainly just fool around and, you know, and, and read. I was a great reader when I was in school. And I used to play with um, my friends at home. When I got to college, as I said, it was the beginning of a whole new ball game. Um, I was on my own. My parents were 500 miles away. I was only going to see them three times a year. And um, the school had a wonderful attitude. It was, you, you're now a grown, you're an adult. Of course, they wouldn't let us out past 9 o'clock on a weeknight, but they told us we were adults. And as in the four years, it got to the point where I really felt like I was treated as an adult. And um, I met some wonderful friends. I still have some very close friends from college. They were a totally different group of people that I had, than I had gone to high school with. And a lot of, there was one definite alcoholic in this group. And she was the one person that I risked my entire college career for. And this was the second alcoholic that was ever in my life. Although, again, I didn't know it at the time. They had gone out and bought a gallon jug of A&P wine and sat in the parking lot of the A&P and gotten drunk. And they came back, and of course, you know, this was an all-girls Catholic school, so you definitely don't show up after 12 o'clock drunk. So they snuck in the back door. They called us, and we snuck them in the back door, which was ground for expulsion and the whole bit. And I probably wouldn't be here if I if they had ever found out what I had done, because my father would have strung me up, because he spent an awful lot of money on my college education. And... We, I'll, this was the first evidence I ever had of a blackout. Um, we spent three hours walking Donnie up and down and up and down, putting her under the cold, trying to get her sober enough to go down and find her name. She was sick all over the bathroom. We had to wash her clothes. The whole, I mean, it was just a royal mess. The next morning, she bounced out of bed and came running in and told us, oh, isn't it wonderful? I went out and went drinking last night and nothing happened. Well, I almost killed her because I had, I mean, I was the one who had to clean up this whole mess. You know, and here she was, she didn't remember a thing about the whole incident. And we knew then something was wrong with the way Donnie drank, but we didn't know what to do about it. And it was late in our college career, so it didn't matter. Um, I had gone to a, a girls' school in Cincinnati, and there were two, two really good friends of mine who came from out of town that boarded at the school. And... When I was a, when I was a senior in college, my friend, so I went was invited to her wedding, and I decided to go. It's only a couple hundred miles from New York, and I was going out with a guy at the time who I thought I was madly in love with, but I'd also gotten to be this real fancy-free person. Okay, um, when I was a senior in high school, I'd gone to visit the same friend at their their summer cottage, and I remember she had two brothers. Okay. And the one she talked about constantly. The one was kind of far removed from them. They, he just didn't associate with his other brothers and sisters. But Caroline talked constantly about her brother. And I couldn't wait to meet this character. Well, I got there and I thought he was totally and utterly disgusting. Um, he was kind of an interesting character. He played the banjo and everybody thought he was great fun, but he drank Bacardi rum out of the bottle. Now, in my family, you drank everything, including water, out of a glass. Um, you always had a tablecloth on the table. 
and red silverware. We didn't eat with paper plates and plastic forks. We always had a well-set table, and you never drank out of the bottle. That was what my mother, and we never even had them on the table. It was my mother couldn't stand that. She can't stand jars or anything like that on the table. Well, here I am thinking I was going to meet the most wonderful man in the world because that's all his sister had ever told me. And he drank. I mean, you know, drinking Coke out of a bottle was okay, but, you know, rum out of the bottle. And so, and then he wouldn't let me ride on his motorcycle, and I just decided, well, forget this one. So I went down to her wedding, and I thought, yeah, you know, Caroline's got two brothers, and as far as I know, neither one of them are engaged or married or anything. So, and I've never been to Washington. Maybe, you know, this guy had gone to school in Washington, and I thought, well, I'll have a good time with one of them. You know, it doesn't matter. I'm not looking for any long-term relationships. Just want to have a good time in Washington on the weekend. Well, we got steered together, and we had a wonderful time. I totally forgot about this guy I've been going out with for two years. And went home, and I brought his gold ring with me, and everybody wondered, what in the world did you do in Washington? And I said, nothing. We had a really good time. I, we drank. I never drank so much in all the days of my life, but I came to find out that was what happened to Klein Weddings. My mother-in-law would move in three days before the wedding, and her friends would come in, and she had a friend who was German whose mother used to send imported German champagne over to her. Jody would bring all that. My mother-in-law brought all her liquor in half gallons because my one brother-in-law worked uh, was in the Marines, and he got all the booze cheap at the PX. They would stay in the motel for three days before the, the wedding, drink, drank like fish at the wedding, and stay for three days after the wedding, and continue this party. And I thought this was wonderful, till about the third wedding. And um, and they, Jim's brothers and sisters were all born within two years, and they were all married, or within five years, and they were all married within two. So we had two, four weddings within two years. And they were wild. One was wilder than the next. And uh, until I got to mine. So anyway, that's how I met my husband. Um, was at this this wild wedding, and um, I had no idea. I just thought that this was normal. They were having a good time at their wedding. I went back to New York and um, graduated, and then decided that I would move to Columbus, where he was in graduate school. And I tried to find a job in Cincinnati. I decided to move to Columbus for a lot of reasons. And um, a year later, then we announced we were married. Well, in the meantime, my father was not too sure that he wanted me to marry that guy because there were a couple of incidents when Jim came to our house that were not real pleasant. Um, I don't remember what prompted it, but I do remember my grandmother lived next door, okay? And there were only three houses on the block, and I do remember standing in the backyard one night screaming at my grandmother in the second floor window of her house and yelling at my mother in her house. And I don't know where Jim was. I think he had left for some reason. He had gotten mad at them, probably because he was drunk. Stormed out of the house, and I was so upset and so angry at my family that I was sitting, standing out there screaming like a fishwife at my grandmother. And didn't I was just totally hurt. And so, you know, in my, I'm sure, I remember there were a lot of incidents where Jim was screaming and yelling at my family and back and forth, and it was not a real... It was not the type of a you know, courtship that you would want for your daughter. So we, uh, but we went ahead with it. You know, he calmed down enough that he convinced. And after all, he had a darling mother, so how could he you know? So we ended up getting married, and um, we. I really didn't have any inkling that he was an alcoholic. He'd had a bad accident when he was in college, 
And my fix-it abilities were coming into play there. I figured a lot of the things that were wrong with him were a result of that. And I was going to, you know, give him a home that he would feel secure in, give him somebody to love so that he would feel that he had a purpose in life and direct his entire life so that he would become a huge success. Because after all, I knew better than he did. Um, I didn't tell him that, but that's the way. Um, I knew the people that I was going to introduce him to so that he could gain them as clients and have a great social life. And you know, I had the whole thing laid out. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, he didn't follow this plan whatsoever. Um, I, My first I, really idea that there was something wrong with his drinking came at a fraternity party where he he and two motorcycles and they were both bigger than the two of us put together um, one of them was a woman and um, she was going after Jim because he was after her husband I don't know what they got into a fight about but they got into this huge fight and I tried to, to break it up, and they pulled me away from it. And um, he he got mad at me. We had him in the kitchen, and he got mad at me. I said, you know, just leave it alone, just leave it alone, you know, forget about it. Of course, everybody had a lot to drink. And uh, his response to me was to take me and just give me one big stiff forearm. And I went flying across the room and hit my head on the radiator. Well, there'd never been any violence in him. In fact, I honestly can't remember my. And I'm sure they did. But they always did it when we didn't see it. And, you know, I'm unaccustomed to it. And never. And so, you know, there's blood pouring, you know, had wounds out your blood, blood just pours out like crazy. And I was crying, I was upset, and the whole thing. And I remember the president of the fraternity had his arms around me, and I was saying, what's the matter with him? Why doesn't, why can't he drink like other people? Why did he change? Why is he so different when he and they had said things to me when after we got married about how wonderful it was. You know, Jim has really settled down. Well, when you're talking to a family member of an alcoholic, that's like, I mean, you can't tell them anything better. You tell them that you have fixed something. You have made somebody better. So that's what we're out there to do. And I really felt good about it, but then things would come up, you know. And that was, like I said, the first time I ever realized that somebody was... I had things all psychoanalyzed, and here comes Santa Claus. <laughs> and um, <laughs> there goes Santa Claus. Wrong group, Santa. Uh, I had it all figured out. I had enough psychology in college to, to know what was wrong with my husband, okay? And I, I figured that it was because he didn't have a job, he was insecure, and he didn't know what his future was all about. So, you know, um, once he got a job and things would settle down, it would be, you know, he passed his exams and got his degree. Everything would be fine. Well, it t- kind of turned out that way. Um, things did get better once he got a job. He graduated and moved down to Cincinnati. And things were going fine. And But about six months later, he started to act up um, we had never had much money because in graduate school you just don't have much money. We were living on my my salary, which is approximately forty five hundred dollars a year, and we got down there. Our income went up to about ten thousand dollars a year, and we thought we were, you know, John D. Rockefeller the fifth. And 
I remember our great thrill was that we finally were able to have a big party. And we went across the river to Kentucky, naturally, where the booze is cheaper. And <clears throat> also illegal to do this, but we did it anyway. Um, and we came back with a mixed case of, of liquor. And we thought that was really, we had really arrived. You know, we could afford to buy an entire case of liquor all at once. All different kinds, but still, it was a whole case. And we had this Christmas party, and, you know, it wasn't all used up. But I remember probably about a few weeks later, we were going to have another party. When the, just having some people, it wasn't going to be a big thing. And I, we had a pantry in our kitchen, and we had, I had put the, the case in there, and I looked, you know, just occasionally, because I didn't drink that much. And um, there were still bottles in there. And so I figured we had about five bottles of liquor. Well, the night of the party came, I don't know why I never checked. This was the first time this had ever happened. I went in to put, get the bar set up. There wasn't a drop of liquor in that case. There were still bottles in there with all the tops on them, which may why I thought there was liquor in there. But there wasn't a drop in any of those bottles. And it was like a Sunday night, and you couldn't buy I was furious. And I think that was the first time that we ever had a really big knockdown drag out fight about, you know, why did you do this? Why couldn't you have at least thrown the bottles away? And then I would have known. I could have gone out and bought the liquor. But, you know, what are you trying to prove by putting them back? And uh, so I, I guess we did something. I don't know. We borrowed it from somebody, but we got through it. But I was really upset about this. And he, we had, um, it went on from there. I, the whole thing in the beginning was, uh, I, I thought, I vacillated. I went from, yes, yeah, something's wrong, to no, nothing's wrong. To look at him, he's fine. You know, there can't be anything wrong with him. He's doing everything right. Um, to, you know. What the hell is the matter with this character? Why can't why can't he just do what everybody else does? You know, I was always comparing us to other people. You know, we didn't make enough money. We didn't live in the right place. We didn't have the right car. And I was very much into all that. Um, it progressed naturally at will. And I really had gotten to the point where I didn't know what it was. Uh, I don't remember much about 1973. Because I didn't do much in 1970. We had moved to Cincinnati. Um, I didn't have a job. I was kind of looking for one half heart. And I really, so I didn't really have anything to do. We didn't have any children. And I really don't think, and I didn't do much. His drinking had gotten worse. It was still periodic. It was still on the weekends, mostly on the weekends. And, but his behavior was getting to be more irrational and more unpredictable. And the only thing I can tell you is that I did nothing. I would get up in the morning and I would read the paper and just kind of, I didn't watch television. I just would kind of sit around and worry. I didn't do the dishes, didn't make the beds, didn't clean the house. I just sat around and worried. What's he going to do? What am I going to do if, what am I going to do if he doesn't? You know, and I project. I'd get into weeks and months and years from tonight, you know, and I'd worry about the next thing that we had to go to, um, how people would react. It finally came to a head one night. His alcoholism and and all the the alcohol he was putting into his into his system got him into a very bad sinus condition, and I finally got him to go to a doctor. 
I really felt that he had a psychological problem, that, you know, he had a psychiatric problem. And if that wasn't it, then because he'd had this bad accident in college, I had come to the conclusion that the only explanation for this was that he had a brain tumor. And I felt that if I could just get him to the right doctor, they would figure out that he had a brain tumor. Now, I, from there, I didn't go anywhere. I didn't think about what they were going to do with the brain tumor. And, uh, you know, and <laughs> I didn't even think about it. What, what, what if it's inoperable? Then where are you going to be? You know? uh, but that was the only explanation I could come up with. Because, like I said, he didn't drink every day. But his behavior was very unpredictable every single day. I never knew what to expect. Of course, like I said, I had no idea that alcoholism existed. That to me, that was some kind of a weird disease that, you know, like I said, bums and bad people. And finally, he had gone to this one doctor for an ear, nose, and throat man, and he had given him some kind of medication. And, of course, he was told not to drink. Well, as you all know, he definitely drank. And there was a, a reaction one night. Everything just kind of went... And it was a very bad scene. He pulled the phones out of the wall, locked all the doors. We were on a third floor walk-up. Um, locked all the windows and pulled out the 38 and was threatening me and himself. You know, what good is the whole, why should I go on living? You know, it's not worth it. It's miserable and you don't care. Nobody cares. Who cares if I live or die? That whole wonderful scene. And I remember, I think the, the, the thing that triggered this whole thing was that he didn't have any cigarettes. And that's how I managed to get out of the apartment, was that I said, I'll go get you some cigarettes. And this was the first time my higher power ever really came to my aid. I really believe that if it hadn't been for my higher power, I probably would be dead. Because I was very calm. I had no way of knowing how, what I was dealing with. All I knew is that if I got really upset, I didn't know what he was going to do. Now, I did manage to get out of the apartment. I went and called this doctor that he had gone to and told him what was going on. And he said to me, well, he's an alcoholic, of course. And I said, well, you never told me that before. He said, now what am I supposed to do? And he said, well, go to the police. They'll they'll get him out of there and they'll take him to a hospital. Well, he obviously hadn't been to a police station lately. Because when I arrived at the police station, they said to me, lady, I can't take anybody off his own unless he wants to go. And I said, but you don't understand. You know, he's got a gun up there, and he's threatening everybody that'll come near him. Well, we can't get him out of his own house. And I said, well, the doctor said. And they said, well, then you tell the doctor to come get him. Uh, I know this guy, you know, it was like 2 and 1, it was around 11.30 at night. And I knew this doctor wasn't going to come make any house call, not to this kind of a thing. So uh, I called this doctor back, and I said, they're not going to do anything. I said, now what do I do? And he said, well, let me talk to him. Well, I don't remember exactly what happened, but somehow I ended up going back to the apartment with a couple of squad cars. My father, I called him, and he had come over from Clear Cross on the other side of town, and somehow he had more squad cars there. So there I am. Okay, now here's this person that never wanted to cause trouble in her life, remember? And there she is with six squad cars with all those little blue lights going round and round, no, you know. And I knew about five people in that apartment building that I didn't ever want to know. Well, fortunately, they were all out. It was another one of those coincidences. Except that the people who lived right across the hall from us came home in the middle of all this. You know, you know like anybody else, they wondered what in the world's going on here. 
And I remember this dear sergeant walked up to them and said, do you live up in this apartment? And they said, yes. And he said, well, where do you live? And they said, well, we live right across the hall from Noni and Tim. And he said, well, he said, I want you to go in there, he said, and make a lot of noise when you go up the stairs. Because we're having some problems. And I want you to go into the farthest corner of your apartment. Well, the look, I mean, they didn't really want to go in after that. (laughs) But they somehow went back up. And, um... The police still were not willing to go up, so it ended up that I went creeping up the stairs with them behind me, and I knocked on the door, and I felt like something out of, you know, thin Casey or, you know, um, dragnet, because I'm leaning against the wall, and, you know, Jimmy, are you in there? And he said, yes, and I said, well, where's the gun? And he said, it's on the table, it's all right, come on in. So we went in, and... I ran in, grabbed the gun, dropped it down the thing, down the, the stairwell to the police, and went back in. And they ended up taking him on a stretcher down three flights of stairs, you know, not very quietly, screaming all sorts of obscenities. Jim has a very imaginative mind when it comes to obscenities. Um, so, you know, I was praying everybody was either totally asleep or dead drunk or something so they wouldn't hear all this. They were supposed to take him to a hospital, um, but because of the the laws or something, they have to take him. They had to take him to City General rather than taking him to this private hospital. So we ended up at General Hospital with Jim on a stretcher out in the hall, still screaming, head just awfully. And this little I remember this Pakistani intern was sitting to me saying, "Well, now let me get the facts." And my father said to him, forget the facts. This guy is really in bad shape. Oh, no, I need to have the facts first. And I said, the facts are that this man needs help. Now let's get going. Well, finally they got him transferred to this other hospital. I didn't see him again for three days. They had him locked and strapped to his bed in a locked ward. And this dear little psychiatrist who avoided me like I had the plague kept telling me, I finally cornered him in a corner and he was about this high and I said to him what what's your diagnosis what's wrong with this man I said is is, is it alcoholism or is there something else and he said well we really don't know yet because he's very sick and we've got to do I said okay do your test and I'll be back in touch with you never called me back so I called him back I said what are your tests and he said well we've done an EEG and there's something funny on it we want to do a cat a brain scan on him and I thought, oh, my God, he does have a... By then, the ramifications of what a brain tumor was and what they could be had set in. And I was scared to death. I had to pick him up, and we went over to the hospital, and I sat there for three hours and was praying, please don't let him have a brain tumor. I didn't want a brain tumor anymore. Somebody had told me he was an alcoholic. Somehow I knew that that was an answer. I didn't know what it meant. And... He was in this hospital for about four days when I thought, I better start something with the disability insurance so we have some money to live on in case something doesn't go right. But I didn't want to call and tell my insurance agent, who was a dear friend of ours, where he was. Please stop recorder at this point. Turn cassette to side two. Thank you. But I didn't want to call and tell my insurance agent, who was a dear friend of ours, where he was. The name of this place was the Cincinnati Mental Institute or something. It had a really horrible name to it. And it was obviously it was a mental institution. 
And I didn't want to have a husband in a mental institution. So I was trying to hem and haw with my insurance agent as to where he was. He was in a hospital, but I didn't want to tell him where it was. And that's a little hard to do. So finally, I blurted it out. I said, he's at Emerson North. And uh, Jack said to me, he said, no, he, he said, I know why Jim is in there. He said, I've been watching him for about three years. He said, Jim's an alcoholic. And he said, and I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been in it for five years. And I couldn't believe my ears. He proceeded, he didn't let me say anything. He proceeded to tell me his story. And it was very similar to Jim's. He was a very violent alcoholic. He'd shot at his wife. Um, but he'd gotten better. He joined AA and things were, and he said, I want you to talk to my wife. And he put Wanda on the phone. And as I said, they were friends of ours. And she went through the whole thing with me and said, you know, I'll come over and talk to you. I felt really relieved. I thought, there's the answer. My worries are over. Somebody's going to solve my problem. Well, it didn't all work out that way. Um, the psychiatrist finally diagnosed Jim as not being an alcoholic because he had to have the fifth stage of alcoholism, and which I didn't believe. Because I, I thought if this isn't the fifth stage, I don't even want to see what the fifth stage is like. So, um, to make a long story short, Wanda dragged me to Al-Anon. She would not let me get away from it. Uh, on Thursday night, she called me up and said, I'll be down at the, at, uh, at the steps, you know, meet me and we'll go to the Al-Anon meeting. I didn't want to go to Al-Anon. It was his problem. You know, he was the alcoholic. He's the one that had the problem. That's what AA was for. Well, I went to satisfy her because I figured, well, they'll tell me how to keep him from doing this again. And because I didn't ever want to see a repeat of that, that whole night. And um, I went and they all told me how glad they were to see me, and I didn't like these people. I was in a church basement. Um, it was a nice church basement, but, you know, and I didn't see anybody that looked like me. I felt they were all, they were they were high school graduates, and um, maybe. Um, their husbands certainly were not professionals. Um, and I was convinced after listening to them that they were all either divorced, their husbands were dead, or their husbands were in AA. There wasn't anybody like me. You know, I was unique. They didn't know what they had, and I didn't belong there. So, you know, thank you very much. But Wanda wouldn't let me not come. So she dragged me, and we ended up, I could identify with her. And we would sit and talk after this meeting. Our meeting would go from 8.30 to 9.30. And then we would have coffee and refreshments till about 11. And then Wanda would drive me home, and I only lived five minutes from the, the church. And we would sit and talk for at least another hour. And I would cry and, and say, you know, I don't understand. I felt good at the meeting. Why do I feel so scared and, and so alone and so afraid when I get back to this door? Well, one of the reasons was that he had started to drink again, and I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't think that was the answer. You know, there was nothing wrong with me. I didn't have anything to do with it. You know, I was doing all this to keep this place together. Um, I couldn't do anything. I was worried about the fact that maybe people would find out about it, and that would be the end of his career, and, you know, the end of his career would be the end of us. And I was real good at projecting all kinds of disaster. And finally his drinking started to get worse, much worse. It didn't go back. We never hit another night like we had. But I got really scared. And I lived with the terror that that would all happen again. Every time he took a drink, 
I would think, oh, God, here we go again. And I couldn't go to sleep at night. I didn't want, I started canceling invitations because I, I didn't want to get into a, a scene at a party. Or, um, and he had been to some AA meetings. So what he had, he had shifted his mode of drinking to before and after parties. So that when he went to parties, he was, he was horrible because he wouldn't drink anything, not even a glass of water. And of course, when you don't have a drink in your hand at a party, that's all they want you to do is drink anything. Can I get you anything? And I would say, don't just drink something. And I would be embarrassed by that. And I couldn't understand what they were talking about with the 12 steps and the higher power. My higher power, I always believed in God, but he had gotten lost in the shuffle. Um, I had quit going to church when I was a senior in college. And that was a monumental decision because I, in the back of my, I really didn't believe what I was doing. And I figured, why should I be a hypocrite? I don't get anything out of this. I don't believe what's happening up there anymore. So I quit going to church. And in the back of, I was always waiting for the lightning bolt to hit because that's what I thought was going to happen. And then I thought, no, God's going to let you play the string out for a little bit. And then it got to the point where no lightning bolt hits, so it got to be fairly... I just didn't even think about it anymore. I didn't tell my mother I wasn't going to church, but that was, you know, I, that was because I didn't want to bring up all that mess that she would go into if she found out. So I, I believed in God. I did not believe in God. I just didn't believe in religion anymore. But he was not, certainly was a part of my everyday life. And I'd heard about them, and I thought, you know, my first reaction was I'd hit a bunch of religious freaks. And um, I got, there was a woman in my Al-Anon group that I couldn't stand. All she ever talked about was God and her psychiatrist. And those, that's how she got well. And I'd sit there, and my group at that point was around 25 people, which 11 years ago was a big group. And I'd, she, they'd go around the table or something, and Marion would start to talk, and I'd sit there and think, oh, God, here we go again. It's going to be, you know, how God saved me and what my psychiatrist said. And invariably, that's what she talked about. And I thought, this isn't what this is all about. You know, I just don't belong here. And I really didn't feel comfortable what Alan on means. I would feel relieved, and I would get rid of the fear for the hour and a half that I was there. But I really didn't buy into it. And finally, Jim's drinking had progressed to the point where the fear in my body that I was going through, and this is what I'm saying, I don't remember what happened that year, because that's all I did was sit around and worry about it. I couldn't, and by that time I'd gotten pregnant, okay? And I remember the time for the baby to be born was coming, and all I can think about is, you know, he was drinking a lot. I remember calling people and saying, what am I going to do with these drugs the night that the baby's going to come? And one tough old bird said to me, well, call a cab. And I said, call a cab? You know, he's supposed to be there. He's taking these childbirth classes, and, you know, that's where he's supposed to be. I can't go to a hospital without my husband. You know, what will people think? And then the even worse thought was, what if he's drunk? And we go to the hospital, you know, and he's stuck, you know. So that didn't make that whole thing. Well, as it turned out, he wasn't drinking on the night that that the baby was born. And um, I was nursing this child, and she was doing really well. She was gaining like three pounds a month for the first three months. 
And in the fourth month, we went for her checkup, and she had gained like three ounces. And the doctor looked at me, and he said, um, is she not nursing her or something, you know? And he said, I'm not real happy with this, you know, especially given her track record here, that she's been gaining so much, and all of a sudden she's not gaining anything. And someone had said to me in an Al-Anon meeting that if you don't calm down, it's going to affect your milk production. And that was something that I had really never thought would happen to me. And all of a sudden, here I was, I was faced with the physical facts. Some, my, my emotional state had interfered with the life of my child. She wasn't getting the nourishment she needed. And my doctor was telling me that if she doesn't start to gain weight, we're going to put her on a bottle. Well, I was into this, you know, nursing business all the way. And, you know, nobody was going to put my child on a bottle if I could help it. So I went back to my Al-Anon meeting and I decided I'd better start listening. I'm obviously in, not in any kind of a serene state, so I'm going to listen to what they say and start to do what they tell me. So I got myself another sponsor. Turned out to be the woman who liked God and her psychiatrist. But by then, I had come to realize I still wasn't real keen on her psychiatrist. She wasn't trying to get me to go to him. But I could buy into what she was saying about God. And other people were saying things about their higher power and about God. And I was beginning to buy into that. And I figured I might as well try it. Nothing else has worked. On the last resort, we try what they tell us. And uh, it started to work. Um, my touchstone was the serenity prayer. I remember one night pacing in the, in the kitchen downstairs. Jim was upstairs drunk, and I was scared to death. And I walked around and around, and finally I thought, I'd better, I'll say the serenity prayer. Maybe it'll work. And I must have said it a thousand times. And all of a sudden, I felt peace. I lost the fear. I lost the worry. And I lost the tension. I quit pacing. I don't remember what I did after that. I think I probably just went upstairs and went to bed. But I never felt the fear again. Um, it, not to the extent that I had it that night. I gave it up. I turned it over. I had to keep turning it over. I kept taking some of it back, but I didn't want it back. I really didn't want it back. Once I found out what a neat thing it was to live without that fear and that constant terror of what's going to happen... They kept telling me, don't worry about him, turn him over to his higher power. And I finally realized that that's what I had to do with him. I had tried everything to get him to stop drinking. He went to AA meetings, drunk and sober. Um, he went through the patience of some of the most wonderful people I've ever met. Finally just said, we can't do anything more. You know, we've taken him to meetings, we've talked to him, we've done everything. And I, I, and I had to give up. I really, like I said, I had our whole life planned out for us, and he didn't follow any of it. I had to give up my plan. I had to give up the fact that I wasn't going to be who I thought I was going to be. Or, you know, I, we weren't going to have the place in Cincinnati that I thought we were going to have. I had to give up telling him what to wear when we went out, or even when he went. I had to give up telling him which AA meetings to go to. I even had the AA meetings to go to. For him. I knew which ones would where he'd get help. You know, if he went to this meeting on Tuesday night, he'd meet the right people and they would get him sober. He wouldn't go near that meeting. And 
I had to admit that, you know, the only person I really could change was myself. It took me a long time. I'm not a, in this regard, I am not a quick learner. I had to struggle through it, but with the help of my sponsor and the people in, in Al-Anon and the people in AA, I finally managed to get some serenity. Uh, it did get better right away. I'm not going to say that that was the end and that's, you know, we've lived happily ever after. It went on for quite, for a few more years. And, um, but I grew and I could measure my growth by events in our life that were very similar and I could say, I'm not falling apart the way I did after the first time this happened. And it got to the point where I got my self-esteem back and my self-confidence and I could go places without them and have a good time and not worry about... I, the first time I did it, I was really worried that people were going to question me forever as to where is Jim. And I, they, they, of course they asked, and I said he's out of town. He was in Batesville, Indiana, where he was, in a hospital. But I wasn't going to tell him that much. I just said he's out of town. That's all they needed to know. So I went on, I had a good time, and from then on, if I wanted to go to a party or anything, I went. I just had to arrange for the babysitter and make sure that Jim was out of the house. Because I wasn't going to let any poor babysitter take on that responsibility of him. And there were times when he wouldn't leave the house. And um, that's where, you know, I found out just how much Al-Anon and AA would do for me. And that they would go to any lengths to help me. And I couldn't believe that people were like that because I'd never known anybody like that. You hear about these kind of things, but when it comes, push comes to shove, when you've got real problems, a lot of times most people back off. They don't want to hear about it, and they certainly don't want to get involved in it. People would, took me in more times. Um, I spent the night one night with friends in AA because Jim had gotten violent with his brand new baby. Uh, they knocked on a neighbor's door at midnight and said, can we borrow your playpen so we can put this baby in it? And we ended up spending the night at their house. Uh, that was before Jim went into the hospital again. And it's gotten to the point where now I, I can give that back. People, I'll tell people that. I'll tell people, you know, if you need to call me, don't hesitate to call me in the middle of the night. Because I've been there and I've called. And I know what a relief it is to know that I can go there. The best thing that Al-Anon has done for me was that it's given me a whole new way of life. I really don't have the fears anymore. I slipped. I had a monumental one about three nights ago. And, um, but they don't come very often. They're not as bad. My lows, I used to be real mood swings. And I'd follow his moods and they were really up and down. I don't do that anymore. Um, I have totally turned Jim over and let him go. I've learned that with all my, the people that I come in contact with. I've learned it with my kids. I've learned it, I have four children all of whom are, with the exception of the first one, are courtesy of AA and Al-Anon. Because if it hadn't been for our life there, we never would have had any more. Because I wasn't going to do that to any more kids. But all my kids are totally different. And it would be a really easy trap, and I can accept them as that. And I really, I really enjoy them, I think, a lot more than I ever would have if I had never come to this program. Because I was... I was a real controller, and I would have wanted them all to be alike. And I would have had a little mold for each one of them to follow, and to fall into, and to come out of, you know. And none of them would have ever made it. It would have been a constant battleground. Um, 
The other thing I've learned is that if I need help, I can ask for it now. When I first came to Al-Anon, I didn't know what the problem was. I really didn't know what the problem was. So how could I fix it? I thought it was a brain tumor. That was my answer. And it wasn't. It was another, it was a disease, but I'd never heard of it and I certainly didn't know what it was. There were, the symptoms were all there. They were classic symptoms. Other people who knew what to look for knew what, knew what it was, but I didn't. And now, I understand what it is. I can see the symptoms in myself. I can see what my part of the disease was. Um, it's the emotional and the spiritual part, and I definitely suffered from a, a lack of emotional and spiritual maturity. I don't think I would be the same person if I hadn't joined Al-Anon. I would still have been a super people pleaser. I never would have had the courage to stand up in front of this many people and talk. I mean, I used to hate to talk in seminars with five people. And I wouldn't have the courage of my convictions. Um, there have been a couple of things that have happened in my life, not necessarily in our life, where I've had to stand up for something that I believe in. And it's taken a lot of courage. I've had... When I first started with the serenity prayer, it was just the first part. It was the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Now, I've had to work on that for a long time. I still have to work on that. Getting to the second line of the courage to change the things I can took me a little longer because I didn't have that kind of courage. If I believed in something fine as long as somebody else was willing to take charge of it, it's gotten to the point where now I can say, no, this isn't right and this is what I'm going to do about it. Are you willing to help me change the situation? And that's something I never could have done because I've taken on some big jobs and... Um, my attitude towards them is not, I don't have the the plan for what's going to happen if I'm taking them one day at a time with the help of my higher power. I turned it over to them. If this is going to work, it's going to work. I know I've got this and this is what I've got to do and I'm going to try. But I'm not going to get upset if it doesn't go because I can only do the best that I can do. And I never, I didn't do that for a long time. I'm really grateful for the fact that I married an alcoholic. And I never would ever have thought... I thought people who'd been in Al-Anon for over five years were really sick, really stupid. I mean, you know, come on, if you can't figure it out in five years, give up, folks. You know, what's... You know, just they, they'll tell you what it is, and then you go on from there. You don't need to come to these silly meetings forever, you know. Um, and that's... I've heard people say that about, that don't know anything about what a wonderful thing AA and L and I said, just think you have to go to those meetings every single week for the rest of your life. I mean, you know, what a condemnation. Um, they can't understand that on Thursday night, I haven't, I've missed some meetings this year, but for almost 10 years, I barely, rarely missed a meeting. Even on Thanksgiving, our group is open 12 months a year. And if there's a holiday, it's too bad. Somebody shows up. And I've been to Thanksgiving meetings. I never thought I'd go to a meeting on a Thanksgiving night. I mean, you know, you're supposed to be home with your family. But when my kids were little, it didn't matter. Dinner was over and I'd go. And I really needed it sometimes. With the crazy family that I've got, you need some serenity after you have a Thanksgiving dinner with them. And it's, it's brought me back to the church. Um, it took the spirituality that I found in AA and Al-Anon to get me back to God, to realize that he was a person that cared about me, that he wasn't going to send any lightning bolts my way, 
and that I could trust him again, that I could really trust him, that he's only got my best interest at heart. I may not know what that's going to end up to be, and sometimes it looks pretty dim. Um, and he's there have been years where he's thrown, he's tested me to my limits. And I remember my sponsor said to me once, she said, she said, yeah, you don't have to take it. You can tell God that you've had enough. I never thought that was, I figured you just laid back and took it, you know. And uh, I finally did it. I was at the end of my rope and I stood up and I hung the phone up and I stood up and I started screaming, that's enough, how much more are you going to take? How much more are you going to give me? I don't need this any longer. No. If you're going to give it to me, give it to me, but at least help me get through it. And he always has. I now believe there's nothing that I can't get through with the help of my higher power. I've seen it happen with other people, and I've seen it happen in my own life. It's Christmas, and Christmas used to be the most horrible season that I could ever have to face. It's now one of the best times of my life, because I've gotten away from all the commercialism. I've gotten back to what Christmas really means. And to me, Christmas is people. It's other people, and it's sharing. And it's giving of myself. And I'm finally seeing that my kids have bought into that idea. Um, they're, they want to buy things for other people. They want to give something to some other people. And the, the oldest is only nine, so I figure, you know, some, I'm doing something right here. And to me, the greatest thing that I can do is to give back to the people that have given me the most. And that's the people in AA and Al-Anon. I can't ever repay what they did for me. Um, except that I can come, I can give leave, I can show up at my meetings, I can bring donuts and do all that kind of stuff. I can sponsor people. And at one point I'd given, gotten away from sponsorship. I figured I'd had a lot of people coming to me and asking me to be their sponsor. And I didn't want to be a sponsor any longer. I was having a tough time with different things and I was just really busy with my kids and all this and all the school stuff and I thought, I don't need this right now, I'm gonna back off. And so I did. And I it took me a few months and I began to realize that there was something wrong. My serenity was not what it was supposed to be. And then I heard somebody talk about that you had to give it to keep it. And I realized that's what I had to do. And that night, somebody asked me to be their sponsor, and I said yes. And within two weeks, I felt a lot better. I was talking to her every day on the phone, and I was giving it away again. I've now got two two pigeons, if you want to call them that, and a lot of other people that call me on a regular basis. And I feel so good when I talk to them. I always felt that if you call people, you're really bothering them. And they always say the same thing. I said, don't worry, you're not bothering me. I get so much more out of it than you can possibly imagine. And that's true. I never thought that I would feel this way. And I'm just really grateful for the whole fellowship and for you and for asking me tonight. And I'll close with that. Merry Christmas.